I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. This week, we're doing something a little bit different in that we have different guests joining us to discuss AI trends for 2024. Our guest right now is Mike Leone, Principal Analyst at Enterprise Strategy Group, which is part of Tech Target. Mike has been with ESG for more than 12 years and has served as an analyst in one capacity or another during his time. Before ESG, he was Senior Software Performance Engineer at EMC, an IT services and consulting firm. Thank you for joining us today, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on it. Um, 2023 was the year of generative AI. It, developments have become have come rapid fire. Almost every other week, there's something new, some new advance. Maybe the fastest advance we've seen of any technology in this short amount of time. So what's coming into 2024 for Gen AI? Is it going to keep going like, you know, super quick uh, development? Or is it going to be more enterprise adoption or all of the above? Yeah, I mean, we could make this a, a super short conversation. Like everything is going to keep ramping, right? It's going to be widely adopted. Done. Um, no, just kidding. But I'll say this, you know, uh, the start of the year, we saw a lot of hand-waving. We saw demos on stage of promises of what this technology can do. And everybody started thinking, whoa, their minds started wandering. Um, and then throughout the year, we started seeing more enterprise use cases emerging right? Uh, actual customers of vendors that were using this technology in different ways. And those different ways were all over the place. Uh, it was supporting different organizations. It was domain and industry specific. Um, so based on that level of adoption, um, what I'm thinking it, it, or I'm expecting in 2024, you know, the hype cycles and the idea of like a trough of disillusionment. Sure, we are at a level of hype right now. I'm saying in 2024, there will not be a trough of disillusionment with this tech ever. We are skipping the trough of disillusionment stage. We're jumping right from hype to seeing productivity enhancements and improvements. And look, are there experiments that could fail within enterprises? Absolutely. Do I think, you know, uh, that there are some enterprise ready capabilities that aren't fully mature? Absolutely. Do I think, uh, you know, there are too many models to choose from? Yes. Right. Do I think cost and regulation could impact adoption? Yes. But there are just so many instances of technology benefiting enterprises. And the fact that all of this is being driven by open source um, really helps address a lot of those components. Right. Hey, we have more transparency into what's going on here. Sure. Maybe regulation will hit. And that's a whole other prediction that we can go down that path. But Hey, so many folks are leveraging this. It's open source. So let's address it together, right? I think that's a big deal. I think um, the other component that could impact adoption, most importantly, I think is cost. And guess what? The folks that are bringing these technologies to market, they know that. They are really going to be focusing a lot more on cost transparency over the year of 2024. And we're starting to see that already with some of the pricing for you know, uh, the AI assistance, right? Um, so. I just, I don't see a trough of disillusionment here. I think we're going right from hype. 
to early adopters to productivity. Yeah. So in the same line of that, you're talking about hype. We're talking about perhaps doing more productivity. Uh, well, how do you think the AI race will shape up, right? You have this head-to-head going between Microsoft and Google, and you still have AWS. And then you have some smaller companies. I think you and I have spoken about uh, Data Robot, I, uh, maybe IBM or stuff like that in the past. How do you think that will continue to shape up? Yeah, I mean, um, I think we're... I think there's such a big pie that there are pieces available to everybody. Um, So I think that a lot of technology vendors are doing a good job to help address customer needs and requirements by establishing good roadmaps to to filling maybe gaps in their software and or hardware stacks through partnerships. I think there's a big reason we're seeing such a broad partner ecosystem today, because even the leaders in this space recognize that, hey, we can't be the only answer here, right? Um, and frankly, customers don't want those vendors to be the only the only answer there. It's a big reason why open source is so important, right? It's a big reason why even those major providers are partnering with some of those generative AI unicorn companies like the Hugging Faces of the world or the Anthropics of the world who are providing that level of open source. So um, I don't think we're going to see a technology vendor winner, I will say this. Um, I don't think the underlying technology is what is going to drive a winner. I don't think that is what the differentiating factor is. I think it's more around professional services and being able to guide organizations from ideation to execution to scale. And that's not going to be driven by one vendor, um, even if it's a leading vendor that is providing the most services. So um, still early here. I know there are several leaders. I know there was a recent alliance announced that actually didn't have those leaders in it, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, but it's just such a big pie today um, that there's still so much available to all of the vendors that are in this space. Okay, so can we touch on um, AI safety? Uh, so I, the way I see it, you have you know you have the Anthropics and the Coheres and even Salesforce with the uh, Einstein trust layer. So we get to see how that's going to actually uh, work out in the field. But um, to what extent are all the LLM vendors going to uh, make uh, safety that works so that the so that the LLMs don't go off on on crazy hallucinations or just inaccurate uh, outputs? Yeah, this is a major a major theme for me. Major prediction: um, 2024 will be the year of responsible AI. Period. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, It's not just driven by hallucinations, though that is very important, right? So we're seeing things like retrieval augmented generation that can enable organizations to bring in their own data to these models, to not have to retrain them, but say, hey, go to this knowledge source, this data source, and pull some of our own enterprise data. That's going to help a lot with hallucinations, but I think it's a much bigger issue. Um, and I think it's going to be driven by not only needing to ensure trust for the end users, right? The last thing an organization wants to do is spend a ton of money, invest in people and resources and processes. And then there's a hallucination that happens. And all of those end users are like, I'm not using that model. I'm not using that interface. Like I can't trust the output. So I think regulation coming and, and we're starting to see this already with the administration's executive order. I think that that is going to really force organizations to prioritize um, transparency, accountability, governance, security, 
bias, ethics, you name it. You can go down the path. How many buzzwords can we list associated with responsible AI, right? But that's imperative uh, going forward. And that's why I think open source is going to be so valuable in being able to drive a new level of responsibility. And it's not just driving responsibility, it's driving agility. Like, all right, a new regulation came in. We have to address this. Let's work together through this open source LLM to address it. And then you know how quick that that's going to hit other models and other organizations that are pushing out even proprietary models. So um, I just think there's so much focus and open source driving the market that when it comes to responsibility um, and security and safety, uh, I think we're going to be able to address some of those issues faster than we've ever addressed them um, in the past. So just to go back to like open source, because you're not the first person to mention open source. Mm -hmm. um, can you mention like how you think that was shaped up? Do you think Meta will perhaps lead it or do we have other like uh, AI vendors that could be leading open source? And also, can you mention perhaps some of the restrictions, how that we might handle that going forward in 2024? I don't think that there is necessarily an open source LLM leader right now. I just don't. I think there's names, um, but I think it's really going to come down to customer preferences. We're doing research in the space on an ongoing basis. Uh, one of the big data points for me that's kind of driving this open source mantra, 53% of organizations say that they're going to be using an open source model. And look, maybe they're doing that on their own. Maybe they have some in-house talent, but even working with third-party vendors, right? who are going to provide some uh, complementary services to using that open source LLM. A majority of organizations, period, with quantitative data, right, are saying we're going to be using open source LLM to some extent. So, uh, or open source LLMs. Yeah, but, uh, I'm sorry, Esther, what was the other part of your question? Um, it was around, like, the controls and some of the restrictions with open source. Um, mm -hmm. I believe, like, you know, I've asked someone else this about the idea that with open source, we don't necessarily have, like, support you know like you're on your own as an enterprise and so forth i'm going to go back to for example the that that recently announced ai alliance with meta and ibm and um you know other major technology vendors uh, academia etc right i think that alliances like that will provide a level of support and control and blueprints that will enable organizations to gain a little peace of mind. I say a little because, look, it's still early, right? Um, but I think, you know, I think there's so much attention here um, and such a major focus from enterprises to want to adopt this technology that it's going to be, I think in the past, open source has struggled with support and that's been a big issue. That's been the moneymaker, right? It's, ah, well, we'll be a vendor that, maybe owns this project or contributes the most, then our model will be to provide support and that's how we potentially make money here, right? I don't think that that is necessarily going to be the driver in this open source movement. I don't think it's, let me support your open source model. I think it's, how can we enable you to get the most out of this open source model? Okay, so I've, uh, I wanted to touch on something Esther wrote, wrote about last week or the week before. Uh, uh, generative AI is augmentation versus replacement of human workers. Do you see it going forward this coming year more the digital assistant, uh, enhancing productivity, um, or mm -hmm. taking over certain you know lesser order tasks? You know, like and, and so how will generative AI affect the workforce? I mean, I see clearly some places like uh, graphic designers, illustrators, marketing content writers; those jobs might have to go away or change. But um, yeah. what's going on with that? And anything uh, big happening next year? 
Yeah, I'll say um, I think that AI assistance will become table stakes, right? Um, you have to have one within your platform, period. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be on the top three consideration list. So one, you have to have it. And if you don't have it, you need to have a story for it. Um, because I think that that is the easiest on-ramp for folks to leverage this, right? It's up, oh, there's an AI system. I can just kind of type natural language. Um, off we go. I get some responses and that's going to help me, right? It's a big reason why we're seeing the major vendors focus on this, right? Um, Duet AI from Google Cloud, uh, Copilot with Microsoft, the recent announcement of Amazon Q at, at AWS reInvent. Those are just three examples, but I think every platform and we're seeing this from some of the major data management uh, vendors too, right? We, they have their AI assistants, and if it's not GA, um, it's in development. So I think that's the easiest way for organizations to leverage generative AI today, right? I don't have in-house expertise. I don't have the talent. Uh, I don't have the resources. I can just check a box, get this AI assistant, and I'm automatically gen uh, leveraging generative AI. This is awesome. Now, there's a lot of different areas. You know, I, I always laugh because even I'm saying this, right? Yeah, it's going to improve productivity, but that matters differently depending on who that user is, right? Am I a developer? Awesome. This is going to help me code. This is going to help me document my coding or iterate on code or uh, change the, the language that I'm using. But what improving productivity means for developers is totally different than what it could mean to a data analyst who wants to explore data. So I know the top priority for organizations today based on our research is leveraging generative AI to improve data insights. So that's, you know, using natural language to query your data. And maybe it's not within a BI platform. Maybe it's not, hey, I'm already in Tableau or Looker or something, right? And I'm asking it a question to recommend a chart. Maybe that's not the extent. Maybe it's even higher level than that. Maybe it's somebody on the sales team that says, hey, help me understand what I could be doing better in this region based on current sales, social trends or whatever, right? So I think it's going to impact, let's say, productivity in a bunch of different ways. Um, but I mean, AI systems will be a table stake. Speaking of, I guess, AI systems, um, and one thing that we wanted to talk to you a little bit about is how you think multimodal models, how do you think that will affect uh, 2024? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if you guys were able to catch the recent uh, announcement from Google with Genesis and the demo that they highlighted. Blew my mind, right? Yeah. You know, I I keep saying it's like, oh great, here comes another model, I roll. But then you see these demos, especially when it's multimodal, and you're like, whoa, uh, think of the possibilities with this. And for me, I'm excited about that. And there's basic things, right, where it's like, oh, I can upload a PDF. Right. That's pro that's probably one of the most natural components. Upload a PDF. I can analyze it because that's kind of viewed as an image or, um, you know, a chart or a graph. That's that's awesome. But where I see it going, um, I see industry specifics. You know, imagine a manufacturer that's able to upload a schematic and be able to to ask questions of that schematic. And it's not just the image of the schematic. It's also the entire manual right? Um, think of it in healthcare. Uh, think of it in engineering. Think of it like uploading a blueprint or a genomic sequence, whatever it may be. Um, and then factor in research papers, right? Like it, that's where I'm like, it's cool seeing it from a consumer standpoint. 
uh, and you know, seeing that, oh, you can draw a picture and it sees what it is. And uh, this is really helpful, but transforming industries is where I think multimodal will have such a significant impact. And going back to what Sean was mentioning earlier, right? I don't think it's going to be like, oh, all of a sudden jobs are going to be replaced. Like, no, absolutely not. Do I think that it's going to help with training and with educating professionals in those industries? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to improve the amount of time that it takes or reduce the amount of time it takes to do certain things? Absolutely. It's just, it, it's going to enable a new level of empowerment for so many stakeholders. I'm I'm super excited about multimodal and it's really going to impact industry specific applications of generative AI. I, I did cover the Google Gemini announcement only because uh, Esther was out of town at this boutique AI conference in New York, at which she wrote a great story about uh, AI in the fashion industry and the beauty industry, by the way. It's, uh-huh. it's huge. I, I never knew about it because the virtual try-on is so important. And it's not just virtual try-on, but it's also how they formulate uh, using Gen AI to formulate different, you know, beauty stuff. But that digression aside, um, during the Gemini announcement, Google uh, said it would put uh, uh, Gen AI natively on the Pixel phone. So I thought that the development of on-device uh, Gen AI might, I'm wondering if you think it's going to spread to obviously, you know, Apple and, and have you heard anything about Apple's Gen AI project and would it have any impact on enterprises eventually? I have, I have not specifically heard about Apple. And, and look, I mean, I think that it's a natural progression to be able to support generative AI on mobile phones. I th- I'm trying to think of what the offering was that Google said. Was it Nano? Was that what they called it? Yes, I it forget was. what the specific offering was. Nano but, was and, the lightweight version that would go on the Pixel. Yep, yep. I think phone providers don't have a choice, right? I think they have to be able to enable the use of generative AI on there. Now, I think it's a different conversation to say, hey, we're going to develop our own in-house silicon to handle that versus partner with somebody. Um, I believe Google is going to be doing their own chips, but don't quote me on that, um, to support it. I got to look through my notes there. I forget Uh, forget exactly how they're doing it. Yeah, TPUs are, are like the major... They, they do use NVIDIA as well, but they, they couple this, that, that announcement with new TPUs. And, and by the way, yeah, it is, it is called Gemini Nano. So that's going to be really what's made available to Android developers who want to build those Gemini-powered apps on a device. Again, this goes back to like, it's going to be a table stakes, right? Like you're going to have to enable your Android developers, your iOS developers to utilize these models. And then it's a matter of kind of right-sizing the infrastructure that's going to live on these devices, whether it's Samsung phone or it's an iPhone or whatever. I am not sure to the extent with which um, Apple will be investing here or what they'll be uh, doing to enable those developers though. I wonder what you think will be like emerging use cases of Gen AI. It's so hard, right? I think the three of us could go on our computers right now or our phones and say, hey, top 10 emerging use cases. And then all of a sudden it's like, we come out with 10 completely random different things. Um, and it's got, I've, I've done this sometimes like live where I'm like, all right, what are the top 10 new emerging? And then you see something just completely outlandish that you never thought would happen. I'll say this. I think that there's still a massive opportunity to leverage synthetic data and use cases that there's not enough high quality data to support yet. That can be anywhere, any industry or any use case, but 
I'm looking at it more as, hey, what industries have the most available data? Um, which industries don't? And is that preventing the adoption of generative AI in the industries that don't necessarily have a ton of data or that's preventing success? So like, I'll look at healthcare again. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll mention this one again. I think healthcare in 2024 is going to be completely transformed. I think there's gonna be an over-reliance on academia as it should be just because of the availability of some of the generative AI capabilities and models, and then being able to incorporate specific research. I don't have a very specific use case in mind. I just see, you know, uh, some kind of new way to address a disease that we've never seen be before and be able to do it so quickly. It's a loaded question, Esther, because I could go all over the place. And I've, I feel like I talk to customers all the time that are doing this these wild things where I get off the call, I go upstairs and start talking to my wife and kids about it. And they're like, dad, what are you talking about? That's insane. It's it's wild to follow. Okay, so Esther just wrote a story, came out yesterday, a big, big end of your piece on this new model of the deep-pocketed patron, Microsoft funding, uh, you know, OpenAI, uh, mm -hmm. Oracle funding Cohere, uh, somebody else funding Anthropic. No more acquisitions. We had a historic uh, low point of AI acquisitions this year. There was none by the tech giants, uh, mm -hmm. virtually. And really, in the last couple of years, too. No more snapping up a little, uh, you know, Google already stockpiled its acquisitions. Apple did theirs. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Oracle did theirs. But so do you see that model continuing where everybody thinks they can be the next open AI and the best model is to maintain an arm's length distance from your partner? That's a great question. I'll say this. I don't think we're going to see a massive increase in M&A in 2024. I think we're still at that stage of understanding what really those enterprise capabilities need to be for organizations. And it's not going to necessarily slow adoption, but I think vendors are going to slowly be being, they're going to stay tied to the hip of their customers to understand, hey, we need, we have a gap here. Um, this partnership is providing so much value that maybe we have to start thinking about either an acquisition or exclusive partnership or whatever. We're not going to see an increase in M&A in 2024. I think 2025 is where we start seeing that big increase in, in, in M&A. Now, 2024, do I see, based on how many organizations are doing cool stuff in this space, do I see some of them falling off? Yes. I, I, I think that we're going to see a drop off in the number of folks. I think where M&A will occur into 2025 and maybe towards the the latter part of 2024 is really going to be around uh domain specificity and industry specificity um i think that's where we start seeing some more m a activities i think you know you could go and search for you know specialty generative ai organizations or companies in financial services or retail or healthcare. i mean and there's hundreds of organizations in those spaces um, so that's where I could start seeing a little consolidation towards the latter part of 2024, but definitely in 2025. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us here. I, I do have one final question. Um, and just quickly, when it comes to enterprises, because you mentioned like you speak to enterprises every day, what mm. do you think their priority direction in 2024? That's a, that's a loaded question, Esther. Here's what I'll say, right? Um, I don't know if this is a controversial take or not, but it's important. Long term, I think 
most of these models will be converging to giving the same reply, right? Or a similar reply or response. And as that starts happening, it comes down to like, all right, well, where's our differentiation then across these models, right? I don't care if it's proprietary or open source. If it's all saying the same thing, which one's the least expensive? How can I add differentiation to it, right? I think for the enterprise, the big focus will be customization and the incorporation of their own data, period. The only differentiator, I think long-term, when it comes to generative AI, is data. It is the underlying data that is going into not just training the models, but it goes back to like RAG um, and being able to incorporate custom enterprise data. Accuracy will be king. I've, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Accuracy will be king, but it needs to be with your own data, period. That is the, in my opinion, the only differentiating factor for organizations long-term. I'll leave it there. We could probably talk about that for like an hour, but it's enterprises focusing on bringing their own data to generative AI, period, hard stop. <laughs> That's the big thing. Well, thank you for being with us, Mike. Yes, thank you so much. I love that. Uh, your own data will be king. I think that's what I got from that is use your own data and don't focus on anybody else's. Our guests right now are Ricardo Baeza Yates and Husama Fayad. Uh, Ricardo is the Director of Research at the Institute for Experiential AI of Northeastern University. He's also a consultant to startups and universities when it comes to responsible AI. Before Northeastern, he was the CTO of Antent, a somatic search technology company. Prior to that, he was VP of research at Yahoo Labs. Usama is the executive director of the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern. For over a decade, he has been chairman and founder of Open Insights, a data strategy and consulting firm. Thank you both for joining us on today's episode. Thank you. Good to be here. To kick off, I just wanted to delve in a little bit, Usama, if you don't mind um, me asking, what would you say is the main goal for the Institute for Experiential AI? Our goal is to basically enable the type of intelligence where machines and humans can work together. Uh, so machines can assist with, hum assist with human intelligence while humans can assist machine intelligence. The core theme is that there is no kind of set it and forget it autonomously working AI. All AIs today um, require a lot of human intervention, a lot of feedback, a lot of correction. And that's what we call experiential AI. It's our code for uh, AI with the human in the loop. And uh, furthermore, uh, almost all of the AIs working today are driven by machine learning, which has a huge dependence on data. So if you don't have any data, you don't have any AI. So data combined with human intervention is kind of one of the secrets of making the technology work right. And this holds for anything from Google search engines to ChatGPT to uh, recommendation engines to all the stuff that we see affecting our daily life, commercially and otherwise. If 2023 was the year of generative AI and all that entails, all the debate over ethics and privacy and safety and technology, what is 2024 gonna be? If 2033 was Gen AI? Well, from, from my side, look, uh, the, the emphases, the, the two big research areas which Ricardo oversees, uh, when I say AI with the human in the loop, they involve 
responsible AI. Uh, first of all, understanding it. Second of all, developing the practices for using it. Third of all, identifying all the deeper issues that many have. And second of all, is what we're calling hybrid language models, or effectively what I think of as uh, next generation generative AI, which is about bringing knowledge when you have it to work together with the capabilities of a large language model. So I would say 2023, we've seen almost an obsession with uh, larger models, making larger models uh, bigger, uh, was viewed to be better. Uh, a lot of the publications coming out now are showing that uh, GPT-4 is not necessarily that much better than 3.5. Uh, 3.5 tends to have a lot more opportunities um, for um, errors, what, what Google likes to call hallucinations, we call it errors, uh, simply because the way these models are designed, they are prone to a lot of errors. So I believe 2024 is going to be about several things. Number one is a maturation in the market where people start realizing that, you know, in some domains like natural language, you know, writing essays, uh, maybe generating images, things like that, there's a lot of tolerance for variations in what the solutions that generated uh, is. Whereas in many tasks in artificial intelligence, when you're trying to uh, deliver a precise uh, uh, result, um, maybe even quote precise citations or prior cases in law or uh, in medicine kind of uh, very accurate information, the tolerance for these kind of errors and approximations is much lower. So part of it is a maturation where we as a society begin to deal with the fact that, hey, this thing is frequently makes errors. And it's okay, we can figure out how to leverage this in domains where we are tolerant of these errors. So we'll get a normalization. The second part is figuring out how to evolve these models so they work more accurately when we need them to work more accurately. And this under the umbrella, we call it working together uh, at uh, the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University, where we basically uh, develop new techniques that leverage knowledge that you may have along with the capabilities of, of these uh, large language models. The last part that I think will be part of this maturation is the realization that bigger is not necessarily better all the time. Having more parameters makes a model less portable, less maintainable, uh, often unstable, uh, requires uh, a lot more data and a lot more guidance to keep it kind of within the uh, guardrails of, of the reasonableness. And uh, all of that combined is going to lead us to people really beginning to explore. And we're seeing a lot of evidence now of where, where can we get away with smaller models? Smaller models are a lot cheaper to train, a lot cheaper to maintain, uh, easy to, easier to revise. And then how do we enhance these smaller models? They're still large. I mean, when we're talking about a a billion to 10 to 20 to 30 billion parameters, that is large. But that is small compared to, you know, the last time OpenAI was open was GPT-3 back in 2000. Uh, that was 175 billion parameter model. GPT-3.5, we believe, is somewhere around half a trillion. GPT-4, we hypothesize, is around uh, 1.3 to 1.7 trillion. I've heard many estimates. Again, the models are not open. 
But if you go to the more open source, open models, you can get away with training specialized models in specialized domains uh, that are much smaller, a lot cheaper to train, a factor of 1,000 to 10,000, uh, you know, multiple cheaper, uh, and as well as higher stability, et cetera. So we're going to see a lot of uh, heading in that direction, which is a, a natural maturation and reaction to the first shocks, if you like, when people were just amazed that these, uh, you know, we call them stochastic parrots uh, because uh, these large language models don't have any understanding of what they're saying. Uh, and they're stochastic because there's a degree of randomness that comes from their uh, errors and, and ability to kind of produce random results. Uh, so as we realize, hey, these things fit in nicely in some areas, don't fit in nicely in others, uh, we will see kind of a, a balancing out of where to use them, how to use them, when to watch out for them. We will also see, uh, because they are black, black box models, we will see a lot of research activity around trying to understand what's happening inside the black box. You know, why did a model do something? Where is a model reliable versus where is it unreliable? You know, today it's a, it's a guessing game. Uh, it's to an extreme where, you know, people are saying there's new jobs created which are uh, prompt engineering. You know, how, how do I prompt these things properly to get the right result? Uh, my colleague, Professor Byron Wallace uh, at Northeastern actually uh, believes that because there is such instability and such a huge variation in the output when you change the pr input prompt just a little bit, uh, that these are more like incantations and black magic right now. Nobody really understands uh, how to systematically do these prompts. And there's a lot of papers being published. I'll let Ricardo elaborate on this, on uh, how silly sometimes, you know, adding a certain prefix to a prompt, a standard prefix that you add to every prompt results in much better results. Uh, a lot of people are beginning to understand that, hey, you know, a, a prompt is just a way to restrict the model to say, hey, only use these kinds of inputs, things that match my prompt. And uh, I don't know, Ricardo, I, I think I spoke a lot here. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you, Sama. So I have another direction that I think we need to mention, but uh, to complement what Osama was saying, there was a recent paper that uh, they ran a more uh, thorough Turing test. You know, the Turing test was um, this imitation game of Alan Turing that basically, if you cannot distinguish a human from a machine in, in a conversation, you, you are like a human. But they did this, like, very seriously. And basically, the best one was ChatGPT4, and they achieved 43% uh, on the Turing test when uh, humans did, like, 63%. So still there is a gap between... Uh, humans and, and machines. Even they tried ELISA, which ELISA was the first uh, chatbot uh, done with Weisenberg in, at MIT in the 60s, and that did like uh, 20%. So even some people were fooled by, by that person. And I would like to remember that Weisenberg was one of the few AI scientists that said that this was um, dangerous, and this was like 30 years ago. He was already talking about this, and it's happening today. Now, the, the other direction I think will happen next year, which is also very important for this, uh, is, is regulation. So last week, the European Union passed finally the AI Act. Uh, they, they, had, they had a disagreement in, in several topics like uh, use of facial recognition and also uh, what we are talking about, language models. They finally agree. 
Uh, basically, there were three countries pushing for open source models that were Germany, France, and Italy, and they succeeded on convincing the other uh, countries. This was done during the Spanish government. So the EU basically, one country uh, has the executive power for six months, and this was the Spanish government. And the Spanish government is the most advanced on uh, applying this new uh, regulation. In fact, they were working before this, and they just finished to, to, to set up all the systems and all the people to do this. Basically, they have an agency for, for this. They have a, a committee to oversee this and so on. So we'll see next year how that works. And I guess that will push other countries like uh, China or U.S. To, to do more. China already published in April a proposal uh, for regulating language models, which is quite good uh, technically. And, and maybe this will be put in place also uh, next year. So we'll see more regulation coming from other countries, not only from the EU. I feel like you guys mentioned quite a lot of topics here. So I kind of want to dive in little by little. Um, Usama, you were mentioning, uh, what's it called? You are mentioning open source. And I thought that was pretty interesting because uh, in smaller models, open source being the way that many uh, are probably going to go next year, right? Uh, with the open source, uh, do you think we'll still continue to have some of the same concerns that we, we've been having before? Uh, I've heard that although it's like open and we know what's in the models, uh, perhaps like there's not a lot of like, uh, I guess support. Support is the, is the word. Support in terms of like who can help you if something is going wrong. You're kind of as an enterprise, you have to figure it out yourself. No, I mean, this is, it's a, it's a great point. So first of all, uh, I'll just remind you that when we say smaller, we're still talking pretty big. We're still talking about billions of uh, uh, parameters, but maybe not hundreds of billions to trillions. Um, that is still large. That is still black boxy, meaning it is very difficult, if not impossible often, to figure out exactly what the model is doing. What does it key in on? How did the training data, which again is, is limited and curated, uh, anybody who tells you we train our models on everything from the internet, they are not telling you the truth. There's a huge amount of effort that goes into curating just the right balanced data sets, data sets that are free of false information, contradictory information, uh, hate speech, all sorts of bad stuff that's out there on the internet. And that takes a lot of effort to kind of filter through and pick out the safe data sets to use to train it. Uh, but again, nobody understands the sensitivity of the model to that training data. If I change that training data, I'm gonna get different results. Um, nobody understands areas of weakness and strength of the model. Where is it strongly reliable and why? Where is it likely to be weak and why? Uh, they are still very, uh, you know, if I told you, hey, this is an autocomplete capability that gives you an answer by guessing one word at a time, or actually one token, which could be part of a word, but one token at a time. Uh, and it's likely to, once it guesses the wrong tokens, it will go off on the wrong direction. Uh, just telling you that this autocomplete is based on a billion parameters or 5 billion parameters or 20 billion parameters uh, is not going to help you understand. Because that's not, essentially, this is not how human brains work. This is not how we think. We usually think, we see, we don't, nobody knows how we think, but we seem to at least have 
concepts. Uh, we have kind of higher level plans. We can come up with explanations. Hey, I decided this because I thought that. Very, very difficult for a larger language model to exhibit these things. In fact, they're not even there. They don't exist. It's just trained on a bunch of data and it's trained to echo back what it has seen before in summary points in an autocomplete format. Therefore, even the smaller models are not um, necessarily that much easier to understand. So that's a whole other field of research and we need to figure it out. Uh, but what I like about these open source uh, and the fact that they're smaller is that you can build your own private models. You can actually do experimentation. You can change it. When it makes errors, you can feed back those errors and have it correct for them and understand, uh, not understand, but account for uh, these erroneous things to fix them. You're not dependent on OpenAI or Microsoft or Amazon or Google to kind of get around to doing this. Uh, they'll never end up doing it for every person in a personalized way or every organization. Uh, that's why I believe the large language models, uh, the private ones, are likely to see a lot more traction in 2024, uh, simply because companies will begin realizing that having their own models and a control over how to feed back errors and corrections and essentially human interventions into those models is a very valuable thing that's hard to achieve when you're using a public utility model that's offered on the uh, on the internet, uh, on the cloud, and that's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to move. Uh, I mean, moving a, a trillion uh, parameter model is a huge project in its own right, uh, and it's not practical. Uh, but moving a five to 10 to 20 billion uh, model around is relatively easy, can run on few machines, doesn't require so much energy to train, uh, and can respond much, much faster. Understanding uh, what's happening inside the black box is important, and smaller models are an easier path to that. Uh, also, the stability, and finally, the fact that it's uh, a private model and the fact that you can train it. I'll use an example. My favorite example today of a company that has used large language models well and successfully is Adobe with their product Firefly that goes with Photoshop. So uh, a few things that I like about it. Number one is they trained it on data that they fully own, their own image library that they curated over the past decade. So they have full ownership of the images, uh, which allowed them to completely in indemnify users against any IP rights and transgressions and all of that. And that's a whole other topic we can talk about. Um, they figured out how to plug it in in intuitive ways into an existing platform that's used by millions of uh, uh, graphic artists and developers and so forth so that you can kind of highlight part of an image and say, hey, fill the background with this highlighted part or insert a cat smoking a cigar here or, uh, you know, fix this part here and make it look, you know, like, like this other part in the image. Uh, all of that. Uh, are kind of useful capabilities done intuitively, uh, plugged in correctly, and over data that they own. And to do all this, they had to build their own private lang language model, which is, again, uh, more evidence for me that that's probably the direction we want to uh, head into, assuming you can afford to have your own private language model and it's not too large.
Something very important that also happened last week regarding open source model was this uh, launch of the AI Alliance by IBM and Meta. And that doesn't include all the top uh, other internet companies, but includes, for example, National Science Foundation, uh, Intel, uh, many universities, more than 50 institutions, and Oracle, and also includes uh, NASA. And interestingly, the partnership on AI, which is a previous a coalition done with by all the internet companies uh, that is indirectly then uh, represented here. And they're really pushing to basically work together to have open, safe, responsible AI, which is uh, the, what Usama was talking about. I mean, how do we mitigate all the problems that these models have? And I hope this will also improve the open, open source part. Although I agree with uh, Usama that uh, private models are the best. That's very interesting because um, I was going to ask uh, Ricardo uh, what you thought about who's going to push this idea of having it be less black box, right? Because you're talking about like perhaps more regulation um, and then building your own private models. So I, w- I wanted to know, like, who do you think do you think it's going to be more governance that's going to lead to less uh, this black box? And then just to follow up, Osama, is the idea of like you're t- you guys are talking about people having their own private models. Is that going to lead to more? Because we still have a talent problem in AI, right? So how do we mirror having enough talent to be able to build your private models while also, um, you know, not relying on this large other like Google, Microsoft, and the best? I think there are the two groups that will be the first uh, pushers of this uh, more like gray, gray models, not black box models. One will be researchers. So I think already National Science Foundation and also the the European Research Program has programs that are focused on this, on like trying to address this problem. So there's a lot of money today uh, being put on responsible AI, and this will be much more in the next year. So I think this will be like uh, clearly a direction. And the other one will be some governments. I know some governments are, are, are more tough than others on, on, on these topics. Even, uh, for example, some governments think about uh, forbidding some applications, what Usama was saying before. So where we can tolerate these kinds of mistakes and where we shouldn't uh, use them because we have problems. So already, for example, in the U.S., there are already four courts that have uh, published um, basically rules for lawyers on how they can use uh, these models. So basically, if you come to my court and you are willing to, if you want to use this, uh, you have to basically follow these rules. And if you don't follow, uh, then basically you are in trouble. And you know, some lawyers already got in trouble because of uh, using these tools and and basically the tool invented case and, and the judge realized that this was invented case. I mean, the people didn't even check if all the information there was correct. So... Uh, so I would say maybe even some particular people like judges will also push for the better use of these models. Usama? Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of one of the uh, big projects, I mentioned Professor Byron Wallace, he's, he's leading a group of our faculty. Uh, he's a core member of, of uh, our faculty in the Institute for Experiential AI on a project that whose job is to basically uh, figure out how to examine what's happening inside the black box, how to understand uh, where it works and where it doesn't, uh, but I agree with Ricardo. That's that's going to come uh, first uh, in the research uh, arena. It is still a hard problem, very difficult 
to understand, uh, very difficult to disentangle. Uh, by the way, I mean, no one, no one today understands how these models work, not even the, one, the people who build them. Um, uh, we don't even understand some of the core statistical issues with it. Like there's, there's no understanding of why is it that models that seem to have so many parameters that they could easily overfit. Classical statistics basically say if you have too many parameters, you will overfit the data and you'll never learn to generalize and therefore your learning will be nonsensical because you'll be very, very good at the training data, super bad at anything outside that. Uh, and, and that's been known for statistics for a long time that as you increase the number of parameters, your performance, your error rate on the test data decreases and at some point it starts increasing and that's where you kind of stop. These models go into a a regime where they keep adding and adding and adding and adding parameters and suddenly mystery to science, nobody understands it, it starts performing well again. So nobody even understands the basic statistics and what is going on inside and why do these things even perform well. Uh, so there's a lot to be understood about these models. The second part of the question is extremely important, which is talent. It's a different, different levels of talent, right? There's talent on how to use models. There's talent on what you need to do to train models. Training models today is still complicated. You need to understand a lot of things. Uh, you need to be able to interject. Uh, and by the way, something that is completely not talked about by the companies, but is reality, is not just how expensive it is to train. You know, I mentioned GPT-3 was the last open version. Training GPT-3 on less than a terabyte of data uh, was costing something like $3 million of energy, just energy, not equipment, nothing. And that doesn't count the cost of curating that one terabyte or less of data that's balanced and, and well kind of representative. And it doesn't include the cost of the hardware, the you know, capital costs, <laughs> all the GPUs, all of that. When you're going into these bigger models, these are very big projects, very expensive, but even in the smaller models, understanding when is a model okay and the fact that after we train it we need to do a lot of this human intervention uh, and this happens a lot in in all the large language models you see published there after all the training after all that energy use they still have to put an army of people against it to kind of fine-tune it um, and fine-tuning just means catching all the errors that are fairly easy to catch it's almost like regression testing but you need humans for it uh, because machines are not good at that testing uh, yet. Uh, people tried to do it uh, with uh, generative uh, adversarial networks before where the machine could uh, be the adversary uh, to the produced model, um, and that didn't work out. They still needed humans to come in and, and inject kind of common sense and say, well, this doesn't make sense at all. This is wrong. This doesn't represent what I say, uh, etc." So training that talent is very important, which is a big uh, mission for Northeastern and for our Institute for Experiential AI. You know, how do we generate that new uh, uh, crop of graduates, learners? How do we help companies upskill their workers to figure out how to adjust to using these models? Uh, so there's an education along the level of when is it okay to use it, when is not okay, what to watch out for, then how to build these models, and then, of course, you know how to innovate in using the models, and that's that's the research field. But 
we don't need that many. We need a lot of researchers, but we need a lot more workers who actually understand the technology, understand how to use it responsibly, understand what the warning signs might be. Uh, so I would say educated users who are sensitized to the variety of uh, uses, ethics, issues, weaknesses, as well as the sensitivity, this oversensitivity to prompting and how to get around that. All of those are very important talent areas. And you're right, there's not enough talent out there that understands it, which is why we're out there. We're trying to actually develop this uh, new talent, be it at companies or uh, within our university students, by also making sure they get the opportunity to learn in the context of doing real projects. So this is why we have uh, our AI Solutions Hub. This is an organization designed to go out and seek problems, challenges that are important for companies, for society, et cetera, and then working on solving those challenges with the companies, with the organizations, but allowing the students to get a chance to have that experiential experience, if you will, of saying, hey, this is how it really works. And this is very different than what I learned in the classroom where I'm you know, playing with some toy problems and in a, a very sterilized environment. Hey, reality is the world is much uh, less stable, much dirtier, changes much faster. Uh, all of these issues that you don't learn as a student, we want to make sure they get exposed to them so that by the time they, they, they leave our learning experience, they've actually seen it in action. Uh, and they know what it takes to make it happen in the real world, which today they'd have to learn on the job. I can I can I complement that because I think uh, Osama touched two things that are also very important for us. Uh, one is the social impact of these tools. Like for example, if you have these uh, educated users that now are checking uh, bias and toxicity in these models, and uh, the the early, uh, for example, uh, news coming from Kenya and now from other places that are really doing this fact-checking and, and this uh, toxicity checking, they, they, they have an impact on the mental health of people. Like, yes, you can help them to add common sense, but many times you are basically seeing things that, that you don't like to see every day, and you are seeing them every day. And the second is, is the environmental impact that Usama also mentioned, how much energy and how much water we are, we are using. There was a paper in the summer that showed that every time we do a chat GPT session, was about uh, throwing away like half a liter of water in the desert. And, and, and other people complaining that many data centers are using, the, for example, all the water that is available uh, below the soil to, to in many of these things, and, and, and we are not taking care of that. Now, to be fair, I think that the same is happening with other tools, like uh, basically other apps like TikTok or Instagram or many things that are used every day. And if you think we are not using them for something productive, so how much energy you are wasting in, in productive things. That's something that we, we haven't really uh, addressed and I think we should address in, in the near future. Okay, so can I jump in uh, a couple of political kind of things? Uh, uh, first, uh, I'm curious about what you guys think about Biden's executive order and whether, depending on like how much of that will go forward, even if there is a change of uh, party in, in the White House, or if there's not, how much of that framework might stimulate congressional uh, action toward real legislation, whether it's for safety, whether it's for uh, security, uh, whether it's for um, regulating the, the larger language models, making them adhere to the NIST standards? So that's one question. And the other one is, with the election coming up, do you anticipate like 
even worse uh, uh, use of AI in, in, in social media, like, uh, you know, deep fakes and, and, and more now that we have pretty sophisticated multimodal uh, technology, which we didn't have uh, four years ago as much, really at all. And then, you know, Gem Google had just had uh, Gemini last week, which is a uh, native multimodal. So these very powerful tools, to me, it's pretty scary that these powerful tools that are now available to uh, people who would cause trouble in elections. So anyway, those are my, that's my. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make some quick remarks on this one and I'll leave uh, Ricardo to answer the majority. Um, in terms of, um, I've, I've commented uh, publicly in podcasts and articles and, and in writings uh, about the executive order. Uh, first of all, it was a good thing to have the executive order, meaning directing the agencies to kind of adopt and use more, more AI. That, that's a good thing. It will actually uh, bring it more and more to the attention of Congress because as the agencies begin to use more and say, hey, we, we're under executive order to use more, uh, the legislature will start thinking about, well, uh, but under what governance and under what rules and under kind of all of that. Where, where the executive order went short, big time in my opinion, number one is it didn't spell out budgets. So just telling an agency, hey, you should use more AI, well, that's good guidance. But as we all know, if you don't give me a budget or kind of earmark a budget for it, it's unlikely to kind of get great adoption. I think it was an opportunity to instruct and create budgets that basically say, hey, NSF, uh, National Science Foundation, here's a big budget for using AI, for developing research in AI to understand what's going on better. Hey, National Institutes of Health, here's a budget, right? And you should, you should move at least 10% of your funding to address these things. That is much more likely to have an effect. Uh, the other thing uh, it, it didn't do is it didn't set uh, standards. It did encourage uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standard Technology, to kind of look into coming up with standards and urge them to do that. That's good. But it didn't, you know, it, it could have gone further. It could have said, you know, you are charged to coming by a standard, by this date, follow this process. There's a lot more power with the executive that didn't get exercised there. So that would be my... Uh, my commentary on, on that one. In terms of the elections and the use of uh, AI, of course, you know, the more the tools are becoming available, uh, the more likely it is to see use and, of course, abuse. Deep fakes are now, you know, an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude, easier to do than they were before. Uh, and uh, they're going to cause uh, a lot of issues, a lot of problems. Politicians are all over the news, all over social media with recordings, with photos, with videos, and the opportunity to kind of grab data, uh, add in a fake voice, add in a fake statement, add in a fake video uh, is very high. So we'll, we'll see a lot of that bad practice. You mentioned Gemini by Google. It turns out that this was their second kind of uh, swing and miss uh, because they... Uh, it turns out they haven't. Uh, what they showed was not a real live version. It was a recorded video. And then they apologized saying, well, a lot of these capabilities are things we hope the models will be able to do. Uh, they don't do it yet. 
So, uh, but we are getting there. There's no question that companies as capable as Google, as Microsoft, and, and these are huge companies, Amazon, uh, what have you, Apple, all the large giants looking at all of this and saying, hey, let's hire the right people, let's come up with technology and let's put it in people's hands brings up the need to say, okay, when you put it in people's hands, you know, how do you come up with uh, accountability, with liability, with regulation to make sure they don't uh, do what's bad with it? And we're already seeing that the use in, in dark web, we're seeing it in, in the use in, in kind of defense and in offense in some cases, uh, a lot of bad uh, cases are coming up uh, nowadays. Uh, Ricardo, over to you. Yes, regarding the executive order, once I was told that uh, whenever a president does executive order, is because uh, already things are in place to, to make it true. So I would say that there are several things there that were already like, uh, being worked on. Clear demonstration of that is that a few days after NIST uh, basically uh, announced the AI safety agency, which is maybe the main action, and I hope that has a budget, because I agree with Susama there too. Um, but uh, on the content itself, uh, for example, um, there are some mentions that are, for example, very worrisome for me, like, uh, for example, using this in housing and justice. There are some areas, I think, of the government which this could be very dangerous because it may work for 80% of the people, but it may not work for 1% of the people. And, and then what doesn't work is uh, the discrimination is, is huge. I always remember a famous judge in the UK that said basically that it were better to have 10 criminals free than one innocent in, in, in the prison. Uh, well, Benjamin Franklin said the same a few years later, but he said 100 people guilty free and not one innocent in prison. So it depends. And this is all based on Voltaire that said two and one. So this shows the different ethics of different people from two to 100 to see how much uh, injustice you can you can do. Uh, now, I think another problem that is also with the EU AI Act is that they only talk about AI all the time, but uh, this should uh, work for any software, not only AI software. So, so we have to do this uh, safety regulations for all software. And here, the the blueprint of last year was very clear. Although it said AI, below said automated systems. But this time, this was not so clear in the executive order, but we shouldn't give uh, like a loophole to people, basically, that they can say, I will not use AI, and then I, I don't have to worry about all these things, but we should worry about that. Uh, now, um, I'm involved in the Global Partnership of, of AI, which was an uh, initiative that started by Trudeau and Macron in 2019, and we have a responsible AI team there, and I'm... We recently published an article that, for example, for language models, we recommend that to publish it, you have to have compulsory a model to basically be able to detect if any, let's say, result was done by that model or not. So basically, we have a tool, and that's much easier to do that watermarking and, and think because you can do it yourself to say, okay, this was generated by my software or not which is very important for the second part of your question, Sean, that, that basically what will happen with uh, fake news and other things. Uh, Microsoft had uh, Ignite, I think, two weeks ago, and they announced a deep fake tool. So this is getting easier and easier. Uh, there is a very sad case that happened also in the summer in, in Spain where teenagers 
basically used this to, to harass uh, their girlfriends at school and other teenagers. And, and justice doesn't know what to do because this is very easy to use and being used by like a 13 year old kid. Uh, do you, what you can do at that age and, and what you can teach them to, to say, don't do that. And it looks like a game, but it's not a game for the people that are harassed by, by this, these tools. So I, I will say that we will see, sadly, next year we'll see it's too many things, so much. And, and I already have been talking about that, the, the famous um, digital truth that we had. And that was very helpful to, to know about other parts of the world. And we are seeing uh, this uh, nowadays with, uh, say, the, all the wars that we're having. Basically, we will not be able to distinguish what is true and, and, and what is uh, right. Uh, last week, Stanford did the, the first meeting on basically uh, identification of pictures. And this should become a standard for, for camera makers that basically the picture itself will say if it's a real picture or not. And, and if you try to change that, then the, basically you are destroying all the signatures of the picture. So you will know that's a fake picture. I think that's the first step to do it in, at the hardware level because it's very easy to, to change it at the software level. One final question from us as we wrap up, and it mainly has to do with, uh, I know that you guys both consult uh, startups. So I was wondering, what do you think the startups landscape will be next year and how would that continue to shape? I serve on boards and advisory boards and, and so forth of startups, as well as uh, VCs, uh, venture capital funds, as well as I invest uh, my own money. I think we have seen a lot of noise in this space. Uh, it's very natural for everybody to kind of jump on the bandwagon and claim they're working on AI because now this is the next hot area. Uh, so the noise comes from uh, a lot of ideas that are kind of, uh, you know, they go all the way from the ridiculous to potentially brilliant, but <laughs> figuring out which one is which uh, is, is a hard problem uh, that uh, becomes more difficult as more people are claiming it. You we saw a lot of startups kind of uh, doing what I call AI washing, right? They they go back and said, well, I'm, I'm actually using AI in my product, which, you know, two years ago or three years ago when they're working on it, they haven't mentioned AI. Uh, but suddenly they're trying to play up uh, uh, that story, which again, uh, sometimes it's genuine. Sometimes it's a very good way to highlight. Sometimes it's kind of your force fitting. Uh, you know, not not everything needs AI. AI could contribute uh, to a lot of areas. Um, I think the biggest practical uses, in my opinion, if we were talking about just generative AI, look, we know that despite the errors, despite the issues, uh, generative AI stands to provide some acceleration for many tasks that we do in this knowledge economy that we invented for ourselves. And the knowledge economy is a substantial for in, in rich countries, in, in, in wealthy countries like the US, it's over 50% of the economy is actually knowledge economy. So even if we had something that could accelerate work by two, three, 4%, you can't ignore it. And what we're seeing is some tasks, uh, if, if the user has the skill, and I wanna underline skill because that, that gives the importance uh, of, of having the skill and learning it. Uh, if you know how to check what the AI is producing, 
how to adjust it quickly, how to edit it. Um, you can accelerate your work by anywhere from, I don't know, 20% to 60, 70, 80%. I've seen some cases where uh, people looked at programming like Copilot for Code, where they're seeing that uh, very good programmers can be accelerated by 70%, but not so good programmers are actually better off not touching it because the effort it takes you to figure out what it did wrong and debug what it produced is bigger than the effort of trying to come up with the code in the first place. So knowing, and, and this actually emphasizes the importance of skill that universities and, and higher ed and boot camps, they need to instill those very good skills. That results, for example, for programmers. And I thought programming would be one of the areas that would be most affected by this technology because I thought training uh, a, a large language model to speak Python is easier than training it to speak English. Turns out that's not quite true because in programming, you have to be much more precise, something I alluded to before, uh, and it's a lot less tolerant of variations. But it turns out that, hey, in that domain, if you are a skilled programmer, your abilities now just became much higher. Your, your market value became much higher because you, you now can be accelerated by, just call it 50%, 80%. But what's interesting here is, is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. If you're a programmer who's not as skilled, the gap between you and the skilled programmers has just gotten much bigger. And your ability to catch up will be much tougher. Uh, so it, it really brings up uh, uh, many, many interesting questions. Uh, and I'll go back to a point Ricardo make, which is, you know, I call it in general, sleeping at the wheel. Uh, these things, when they produce text, they are so eloquent and, and they have facility in the domain that we are lulled into a sense of, well, this chatbot must really know what it's saying, right? How could it produce something so eloquent? And that's exactly the case he was referring to where a lawyer, you know, asked ChatGPT to prepare a brief and the brief was so eloquent and it quoted nine different prior cases. Several of them, I think maybe all of them were kind of made up cases. But again, precisely because the GPT is not very good at recalling exact details. It's just trying to do autocomplete to the best of its capability. And that's not the best technology for exact recall, which is what you need when you do a citation or a prior case or uh, you know, a, a medical diagnosis, etc. So these things are going to become uh, much more uh, prominent in our lives and how we use them will become much more important. So another aspect of, of your question, I think, is uh, that because of all these tools, basically, uh, you don't need to be to really understand and, and uh, the same similar to programming, really understand computer science to do like a, a new idea because you can use these tools. Uh, and and in some sense, this could be good, but in many others, it doesn't make sense because, for example, you are using a huge tool that is a very expensive, that uses a lot of resources, uh, that is open domain for maybe for a problem that would be much better to have a small model exactly for that task, uh, much cheaper to run, much cheaper to do inference, um, and, and that would be much better for the market and also for the tool. So basically, we're seeing like a bubble of uh, silly applications, uh, and I hope that will finish next year, and we will get back to, to basically uh, the right idea, doing with the right technical uh, skills, and also with the right data, and so on. Uh, and that's why Osama mentioned the AI Solutions Hub that helps startups to do that. But also we have a responsible AI practice where we can help them to do it uh, ethically because I think this will be like a, 
like for example, fair price or, or organic food uh, will be a marketing tool to be responsible uh, to distinguish yourself uh, among all the others. Thank you guys for, for coming. Fascinating. We appreciate your yeah. thoughtful uh, responses. Thank you for having us. Um, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. For our listeners, we appreciate you joining us on the Targeting AI podcast. Please be sure to leave a review. Leave a comment also if you can't. And join us next time on Targeting AI. Thank you and have a great day.